We've been looking at uh, the life of Abraham over the last few months as I've been preaching in the book of Genesis, and uh, we've covered most of his life now. It's uh, uh, got to the point where Abraham has indeed got a son, Isaac, uh, the second son to Ishmael was the first son, and now the second son, Isaac, the child of promise, has been born to him. We're going to read from Genesis 22 today, and we're going to read the whole, um, well, most of that chapter. He says this, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We'll worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he, carried, he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up. And there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorns, horns. He went over and caught the ram and took, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, but because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Okay, dramatic story, dramatic part in Abraham's life. Things had seemed to be finally working out well for Abraham. After 25 years, 25 years after God had called him to leave his home in Babylon and to set out for a land that he would show him where he was going, and then along the way, different promises from God coming at different times. I will surely make you a great nation. I will bless other nations through you. You will have a son. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Different promises that have been given to Abraham over the years, but still no child, still no land. And ups and downs that Abraham went on, wobbles that he had, 
he and Sarah decided, well, maybe we should try and have a child through, um, through Hagar, the servant woman of, of, of Sarah. And, and they do, and they have a child, Ishmael, but that's not the child of promise. And that creates trouble, even though God blesses. And in the end, Abraham has to send away Hagar and Ishmael. But finally, the son is born. Finally, Isaac is born. There's great celebrations that we see in chapter 21. This son's been born. The promises are coming about. And then later on in chapter 21, we see a bit of a treaty going on between Abraham and Abimelech. And, uh, and, they, and they make an agreement over a, a well, um, which, was, which Abraham dug. And, and they kind of get some of the land for the first time. Abraham kind of says, oh, this is, can feel, this is my land. This is my land within this whole great land that God has promised. This is my part of it. He plants a tree there. It's a time to celebrate. And Abraham's had to trust God. He's had to trust God for the long haul. He's had to trust God for 25 years in waiting for this son. But now Abraham's still got to trust God again. But now he's got to trust him over three days. An intense crisis point which is coming up. Three intense, emotionally painful days. And over those three days, Abraham's actions were really going to demonstrate whether or not he trusted God or he didn't trust God. You know, when we walk with God, there are always going to have to be things which we trust him for. There's always going to be something that God is saying, will you believe in me for this? Will you trust me for this? If there's nothing there, then we end up just trusting ourselves. We end up just living lives ourselves and thinking, we can sort it all out. We can make things happen. And God doesn't want us to be in that place. God doesn't, it's not helpful to us because we stop worshiping God. We stop looking to God because, well, what is the need of God? That's what Adam and Eve wanted. They wanted to have no need of God anymore. We always have a need of God. And so there's always going to be things that we're trusting God for. Often when we receive what God has promised, like Abraham, many years holding on to God, I'm believing for that, I'm believing for it. And finally we receive it and we think, fantastic, life's going to be brilliant now. And God just brings something else along. And now trust me for this. And sometimes it's very different. We think, yeah, we've done this. We can trust God for the long haul. And God's saying, right now, trust me. Trust me in the crisis. Trust me in, in something that's, if I don't come through in a few days, it's all going to go. God wants us to trust him in different ways. And he leads us through that point. James chapter 1 and uh, verse 2 says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. I mean, we don't often do that, do we? We don't often think, oh great, we're facing a really difficult time. It's pure joy. Of course it doesn't seem like pure joy. But God is saying, consider it pure joy. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Actually, when we face trials and difficulties, we have to persevere in that. And perseverance has to go on. It has to run its course. There's no point in putting a quick end to perseverance. 
or else it's not perseverance anymore. It's kind of, oh, I was struggling with this, and now God's answered it. Oh, well, that's okay. But no, there are things that we have to persevere through. It's a long, long, long time. James is saying, it's got to run its course. But consider it joy because it's bringing about a maturity and a completeness in you. It's doing something in our character. It's bringing about something. And that is what God is wanting to do in us. And we, we don't think that's the important thing a lot of the time. We just think, oh God, just, just provide this or help me through this or sort this crisis out. And God's saying, I'm wanting to do something deeper than that in you. I'm wanting to build something into your character. And actually, the only way you can do that sometimes is through perseverance and faith and trusting God. Maybe different things at different times. But that's what God is wanting to do. When we bring up our kids, they, they're the same, aren't they? They don't see maturity as a goal. Our kids don't say, oh, mom and dad really helped me to become mature. Actually, they often say, well, give me this, or let me have this, or let me do this. And sometimes we have to say, well, no, you, 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 I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to give you that thing that you want right now. Oh, why not? That's not fair. Oh, everyone else has it. Oh, I can't have it. No, no, no. We're not, we're not saying no to be mean. We're not saying to be no because we don't love our kids. Actually, we're saying no because we do love our kids. And we see a bigger goal at the end of it. We see, actually, it's, there's, there's something we're wanting to build in them. Let's not be scared. Let's not be scared of looking to the long-term goal for our own children. And sometimes saying no and sometimes putting restrictions on things. Because sometimes that can be helpful. Because it's for their good. Now, Abraham's about to go through such a trial. God's given him the promised son. But now it looks as though God himself is going to snatch it all away. 25 years waiting. And then it looks as though God's saying, and now I want him back. What? Genesis 22 opens by God saying to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac. You think, hang on, he's not his only son. He's got Ishmael. But but Ishmael's already been sent away. He's had to face the loss of Ishmael already. He loved Ishmael. But Ishmael wasn't the child of promise. And so in terms of Isaac, he's his only son. He's the son of promise. You know, God's not, God's not going lightly on him here, is he? He's asking him to do something terrible, but he's kind of stressing. He's your only son, whom you love. Oh, you, just let me remind you how much you love this son that I'm asking you to sacrifice. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I tell you about. I mean, Abraham's already been distressed about Ishmael. But now, to sacrifice your son, to build an altar, to build a pile of wood, to tie your son up on it and to burn him on that altar. I mean, that just seems like an outrageous thing to do, doesn't it? An outrageous, unthinkable thing. I mean, you might think, well, Abraham could have been forgiven for thinking, this can't be God. This can't be God saying this. But Abraham knows God's voice by now. 
He's learned to recognize God's voice. He's learned to respond to God's voice. God calls Abraham. Abraham, here I am. I'm ready. What have you got to say to me, God? There's no doubt in Abraham's mind that this is God speaking. And God's saying, I want you to give your son to me. Give him back to me. Now, the principle of dedicating the first fruits of what God's given us is one which is going to be established later in the Bible. God instigates this whole thing of giving to me the first fruits, the first things of your, of your crops, of your flocks, of your animals, of your money. The first things. I mean, that's a principle actually we still teach. We still teach today about in terms of giving to God. We say, you know, we don't just give out to God what we have left financially. We don't kind of think, oh, do you know what? I'm going to see how much, how much money I've got. And then at the end of the month, when I've spent it all, if there's anything left, actually out of that, I might give something to God. That's not what we do. We say, actually, we give to God out of the first fruits. So we get our money and we say, now, first thing, priority, we give to God. And then from the rest, we work it out. And, and we say to God, God, how much, do you, how much will you allow me to give back to you? How much would you like me to give back to you of what you have given to me? And, and we can do the same with our time as well. We don't think, oh, well, we'll see all the other things that get done. And then if we've got any spare time, we might be able to give that to serving God in some way. So we say, God, where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to serve in your church? Okay. And, and I'll work the rest out from that. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9 uh, explains that, doesn't it? Proverbs 3, verse 9 says, um, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and the vats will brim, up, brim over with new wine. Actually, even as we do that, there's a promise that God will bless us back. But that's not the reason why we do it. We do it because we're saying, God, You've given to me, and I'm going to give back to you of the first fruits. So, in a sense, that was a principle that's been established. But surely not our children. Surely not dedicating our children, giving our children back to God. Well, actually, yes, everything. Exodus 22 and verse 29, not a commonly quoted verse. Exodus 22, 29, do not hold back offerings from your granaries or your vats you must give me the firstborn of your sons do the same with your cattle and sheep let them stay with their mothers for seven days but give them to me on the eighth day actually even our children even the sons the sons from whom the heir was going to come firstborn son that's where the air came from in the families. And God is saying, do you know what? Your children, they come from me. I have given them to you. This isn't just something that you have made happen. You've been involved. But it's me who's given this. I can withhold. I can give. And God is saying, actually, give me the firstborn. Give me the firstborn even of your sons. You think, what? Is that what people did? Is that, is that the general thing that people did in, 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 in biblical times? They, they took their first son, first one son, and on the eighth day, they said, here you are, God, I'm going to sacrifice you. Well, actually, no. Later on in Exodus 34, 
God says a little bit more. Exodus 34 and verse 19. It says, the first offering, this is God again, the first offspring of every womb belongs to me. Every womb, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. But then it says this, redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb. In other words, if you've got a donkey, don't kill the donkey. Don't kill the donkey. Redeem it with a lamb. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to swap it with a lamb. It's kind of the donkey who I'm sacrificing, but I'm putting a lamb in its place. The lamb to replace the donkey. Sacrificial lamb. If you don't redeem it, break its neck. And then it says, redeem all your firstborn sons. In other words, we don't have to sacrifice our firstborn sons. Or the Israelites didn't have to sacrifice their firstborn sons. They could redeem it. They could put a substitute in its place. A lamb. A substitute. But the principle was there. That God's saying, this is mine. Give back to me the first fruits of everything that you have. Recognize that I am God. That I give you everything. Job recognized that, didn't he? The Lord gave. And the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He'd been through a painful time. His family had all died. Everything he had had gone. And he said, the Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. That's a tough thing to hear. It's a tough thing to get our heads around. Maybe we lose our sight of that. Because in our society, ownership is everything. We own it. It's ours. Therefore, we're going to keep hold of it. Actually, the early church soon recognized that that wasn't the case. Everything belongs to God. It says no one in Acts, no one considered any of his possessions as his own anymore. He gave freely. He gave freely. Suddenly realizing, do you know what? What I thought was mine, what I was clinging on to, it's God's. I'm going to share it. I'm going to be liberal with it with God's people. They didn't sell everything that they had. It wasn't all big communal community but it was a, a free a letting go of it in the, in our minds it's god's it's god's i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be tight-fisted with it anymore so big thing for abraham sacrifice your son abraham doesn't say how he felt about it does it i mean we can guess we don't have to work too hard at guessing how abraham felt about this But the important thing isn't how he felt, it's what he did. That's important for us too. The important thing isn't how we feel about something, it's what we do. And the important thing is what Abraham did. And it says in verse 3, early the next morning. He wasn't hanging about, he wasn't thinking, oh, do you know, I'm supposed to set out today, I'm going to leave it till the end of the day. Early the next morning, he got up, he saddled his donkey, he took two of his servants and his son Isaac He cuts the wood for the offering and he sets out to the place that God told him about. Just in the same way that he obeyed and left his home in Babylon, Abraham obeys what God asks him to do. It's amazing. It's amazing faith and trust in God and obedience to God. He's been asked to kill his son who he loves and he gets up early the next morning and he obeys. Wow. Wow. James again, explains a little bit about this. 
He says in chapter 2 and verse 14, to start off in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? James is pointing out, we can say we've got faith, but if that isn't demonstrated in what we do, it's not real faith. It's easy for anyone to say, oh, I believe. I believe that. Yeah, I'm trusting in God. How do we know? Well, we know. We only know ourselves if we're trusting in God when we have to act on that trusting in God. And Abraham found out that he trusted in God when he acted in that. He goes on, James, in verse uh, 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith, you see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. That's a, that's a verse that a lot of people get very confused about because it's saying Abraham was justified by what he did. And we say, no, but it's surely we justified, we made right by God by faith. It's by trusting in God. It's by believing in God. And James is making the point, yeah, but we, there's an outworking of that. If we're trusting in God, if we're saying, yeah, we're, we're justified by what we believe, then our lives will show and our actions will show that we really do believe it. We don't just say we believe it and go, oh, that's a bit of an insurance thing there. We'll, we'll carry on our lives as we are, but we've got that, we've got that insurance aside. We, we, we're believing in God. We're believing in Jesus. So that's all okay. Um, but then we're going to just carry on living our lives the way we want to live them. Actually, no. If we believe, if we trust, if we turn to God, if God is our Lord and our Savior, then we act and we follow him. And so faith will involve actions. And for Abraham, faith involved action. He was justified. He believed God. And because he believed God, he was considered righteousness, considered righteous. But what did believing God mean? It meant he did what God asked him to do. And that involves setting out and doing what seemed unthinkable. So he sets off on a three-day journey into the region of Moriah. I mean, how difficult would it have been to have conversation with your son on those three days? You know, we're setting out on a trip, a camping trip, pitching our tent or whatever on the way overnight. Father and son bonding time. You know, it's a bit like bear's camp, but not. (laughs) I mean, I I can't imagine Abraham's going to be sort of, you know, oh, do you remember the time when we did this and the time we did this? You know, he's going to be burdened by this. Isaac's going with him. Going off together, three-day journey. On the third day, Abraham looks up and he sees the mountain that God had spoken to him about, had shown him about. And so he says to his servants, look, we're going to worship. You just wait here. We're going to go and worship and then we will come back to you. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? We're going to go and worship, and then we're going to come back to you. Now, was Abraham lying to them at that point? You might think, well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, if he said to them, just wait here, we're going to go up the mountain, I'm going to kill my son and burn him on an altar, and then I'll be back later. Is that all right? They might have have said, just a minute, what's this all about? 
I'm not sure Abraham was lying to them. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham wasn't lying. Hebrews 11 and verse 19 explains what was going on here in Abraham's mind. It has some insight here into Abraham. And it says in in Hebrews 11 and verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God... uh, Actually, let's, um, let's go from verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who, he who received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though he, God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring would be reckoned. So God said something to him. God said, it's Isaac who the promise is going to come from. Through Send Ishmael away. Abraham's going, well, surely it could come through Ishmael. No, Isaac's the one. Send Ishmael away. So he's believed that. And then God said, and go and sacrifice your son. How do these, how do these match up? How can it, the promise come through Isaac and I'm going to kill Isaac? It doesn't make sense. I don't understand. So Abraham's reasoning it through. It says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And it says, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So Abraham, in these three days, he's trying to work it out. How's it, how's this going to happen? Promises are going to come about through Isaac. I've got to kill Isaac. And I'm trusting in God. God, God's faithful. God's not going to lie to me. God's also said to me, is anything too difficult for God? Is anything impossible for God? Okay, nothing's impossible. Well, I guess. Well, the only thing I can think is that he's going to raise Isaac back from the dead. And that we will come back down the mountain together. He doesn't know. That wasn't exactly how it worked out. He didn't need to know exactly, but he, he worked out. God's, God's going to work it out. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I'm trusting that God does. And so I'm, I'm believing that we will come back. So actually what he says to these servants is a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. Maybe resurrection from the dead. I don't know. But do you know what? We're going to both come back. We're going to go up there. We're going to worship God. And we're both coming back. It's a statement of faith. It's not a lie. That's what he's believing for. When we hit crisis situations, when things seem to go wrong, when it seems that the promises of God don't seem to make sense, God, you've promised that this is going to happen. But now look what's happened. How can that be the case? These two seem to be opposite. They seem to be mutually exclusive, is often said, isn't it? They they can't both be held together. Actually, in God, they can. In God, they can. And when we hit these crisis points, that shows us how mature our faith is. That shows us this work that God is doing in us of perseverance and maturity and testing in times of trial. We see how mature our faith in Christ has got. Do we continue to trust him? Do we continue to say, do you know what? I don't get it, God, but I trust in you. I don't understand it at all. This is agony for me. You're taking away the very thing that you promised. You're taking away the thing, the person that I love the most. I don't understand it. But God, I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. 
Or is our faith shaken? Do we get shaken? It's those times. I've seen both happen. I've seen both happen to people. Sometimes, you know, I, I've seen people, I think, you know, they're going to stand, they're going to be able to stand the, the trial. They're going to be able to stand the test. And then, and then they don't. You find out they don't. And then there's others who you think, I'm, I'm not sure they're strong enough to cope with that. But they've got that faith in God deep within themselves. And, and they do. They persevere. They, they get through. They see God at work, even through the pain. So they start to climb the mountain, Abraham and his son Isaac. And Abraham places the wood for the sacrifice on, on the back of Isaac. Now, at this point, Abraham would have probably been over 110 years old. So he's got a lot of wood. It's going to be quite heavy. He's not going to be able to carry this up the, up the mountain himself. Now, Isaac, by this point, we often think, don't we, in the, it, we get these children's storybooks, uh, Bibles, and there's a picture of, of Isaac, and he's like this little toddler being sacrificed. This three or four-year-old, maybe. Actually, he would have probably been a teenager, at least by this point. A teenager, at least. It says, some time later. And there's, and there's things here that, that have indicated Isaac's not a little child. Isaac's at least a teenager. Isaac knows what's going on. At the very least, he's carrying all the wood up the mountain. You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a little... Who, who's to... I don't know, Sarah Mayton or something like that. You won't say to Sarah, Sarah... Just carry all this heavy wood for an altar up the mountain, will you? You know, actually, if you've ever had kids walking up mountains, they're struggling to get up on their own. They're not going to be too blessed if you give them a load of wood to carry up. Actually, do you know what? You carry the rucksack. <laughs> I'll just carry on. <laughs> so, now, Isaac's a fit, strapping young lad at this point. He's carrying the wood himself. And we'll come back to that because that's important. And he's walking up the mountain. And um, at this point, Isaac speaks. I don't know if he's said anything before. <laughs> Maybe he's been yabbering away and Abraham's just been kind of head down. But, but Isaac says something at the moment. And he says um, in verse 7, The wood and the fire are here, um, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, Isaac is quite sharp. <laughs> he's thinking, we're going up this mountain. It's kind of a bit of a... A barren area. There's not, there's not, there's clearly not a lot of wood up there or trees. Otherwise they'll just collect the wood when you're up there. That would save a whole, a whole effort, wouldn't it? So, but where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? I mean, what a question. What does Abraham say at this point? What should he say? Direct question. Where is, where's, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham says, God himself will provide a lamb. The second thing that Abraham has said, which is a statement of faith. I'm believing. God will provide a lamb. Now, he's believing it for then, in that he's trusting. That's, that's such a prophetic statement as well, isn't it? God himself will provide a lamb. Is any statement more prophetic about what God is going to do in the future? Because Jesus was described as the Lamb of God. John chapter 1, John, John the Baptist saw it right from, right from the start. 
So John chapter 1, as, as John is baptizing, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God himself will provide a lamb. He did. He provided Jesus to take away the sin of the world. There's a real parallel there between this story of Abraham and Isaac and Jesus taking away God's sin. In fact, we see there's loads of parallels in this story. All the way through this story, we see parallels, similarities, or a foreshadowing of what was going to happen with Jesus. Here's just a few. For example, Isaac and Jesus are both born because in accordance with promises that have been given. There are promises about Isaac being born and there are promises about Jesus being born. There are promises about Isaac being and, and his descendants being a blessing to the nations. There are promises about Jesus being a blessing to the nations. Both Sarah, Isaac's mom, and Mary, Jesus' mom, gave birth to them through miracles. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. It was a miraculous birth. Mary was a virgin. She'd never slept with anyone. It was a miraculous birth. God said to Sarah, is anything too difficult for God? In Genesis chapter 18, God said to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Luke chapter 1 and verse 37. Both Isaac and Jesus traveled to a place of brutal sacrifice. Brutal sacrifice. In fact, the place where they went is the same place. So Isaac went and Abraham to Mount Moriah, to Moriah. The only other place in the Bible where Moriah is mentioned is this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1, talk about Solomon. It says, then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Jesus, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. The temple in Jerusalem, the place of sacrifice, the place where all the sacrifices for our sins were taking place, was on the same mountain that God had sent Abraham to three days traveling. You're going to go to that same place. And then Jesus himself became the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrificial lamb. On a mountain, on a cross, in the region of Moriah. It was the same place they traveled to. Both Jesus and Isaac carried the wood for their sacrifice on their own back. Abraham gave Isaac the wood to carry. The Romans gave Jesus his cross to carry. They carried the wood for their own sacrifice. And both Isaac and Jesus submitted to the will of their father. That's why, that's why it's important to know that Isaac, he wasn't just some two or three-year-old who, who has no idea what's going on. Isaac knew what was going on. He certainly knew what was going on once 
Abraham started to tie him up. And that's what he did. He tied him up and laid him on an altar. Abraham, 110, 115 years old. Isaac, strong teenager. He's just carried that wood that Abraham couldn't carry. If Isaac didn't want to be tied up, he's not going to be tied up. He could have easily run. He could have easily said, no, dad, you're getting old. You've lost it. He didn't. He didn't. We need to know Isaac willingly went to that place of sacrifice. He was trusting in God too. He was owning the promise too. Isaac wouldn't have been unaware of the promises of God. He wouldn't have been unaware that he was the child, the child through whom the blessings were going to come. Abraham would have told him, you're the promised child. He would have known what he was, what they were believing for. And yet he allowed himself to be tied up and laid on the altar. And Jesus too allowed himself to go to the place of sacrifice. He didn't have to. He could have run. He could have taken the temptations that the devil gave to him and ruled all nations as long as he served the devil. But he said no. Many people have questioned the whole idea. Many Christians now are starting to question the whole idea that Jesus was given as a sacrifice by his father for our sins. They say it's cruel. How can a father do that? It's cosmic child abuse. But Jesus went willingly. Jesus went willingly. He didn't have to. He had a choice. In Matthew 26, he's wrestling in the garden mentally, emotionally with what's going to happen in the garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26 and verse 39. He went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he sat with them and he said, sit here while I go and pray. And then in verse 39, he says, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Let this, what is coming to me, this punishment. He knew he was going to face the, the wrath of God for the sin of the whole world. God's anger against sin was going to be on him because he was going to have it poured out on him. And, he's, and he knew what that meant. And he said, if anything, if there's any other way. But then quickly he said, but it's not as I will. It's as you will. He submitted to the will of the heavenly father, his heavenly father. And Isaac submitted to his father too. He went willingly to be sacrificed. How amazing. How amazing. But we see these parallels all the way through. Just this Old Testament, this passage, these, these actions were written, happened and were written years before Jesus came. But yet we see a foreshadowing of what's to come. God will provide a lamb. God has provided a lamb. So then dramatically, just as Abraham is about to kill Isaac in obedience with God, he raises the knife and then God himself calls out to him from heaven. The angel of the Lord, which is, which is God, you'll see from how he talks. 
He's about to call and he, and he calls out, this time with more urgency, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, yeah, here I am. Still the same response, here I am. And God says, don't touch him. Don't touch the boy. Don't lay a hand on him. Don't do anything to him. Because now I know you fear God. Now I know that you have been prepared to give him every, give everything to me. Actually, even the promise, the promised child, for you, Abraham, it wasn't more important than the promise giver. The promise giver is more important. God gives us many promises, but always the promise giver is far more important than the promise. We can be holding on to things for God and they can become the biggest thing in our lives. And that's wrong. Because God is the biggest thing in our lives. Abraham showed, actually, you haven't withheld this from me. And Abraham looks up again and he sees a ram caught in, in, the, in, in the bushes. And it was a substitute offering. Abraham was right in what he said. God will provide. God will provide. He does provide. He did provide a substitute. That's where the parallels change. You see, for Jesus, there was no substitute. For Jesus, he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to your will, Father. If there's any other way, he would have known the story of Abraham. He would have been aware of the parallels. But for Jesus, there was no other way. Jesus was the other way. He was the substitute. He was the lamb. It should have been us on that altar. It should have been us being given to God. Romans 5 verse 8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was the substitute lamb. He substituted his righteousness, his goodness, his obedience for our rebellion against God, our imperfection, our disobedience. He took the punishment we deserve. God provided a way. And Isaac, it says he was brought back from the dead, figuratively speaking, Hebrews says. Jesus was raised from the dead, literally. Abraham was believing. I believe God can do anything. He can even raise someone from the dead. Yeah, he can. He did. His own son. That's how he chose to do it with his own son. That wasn't the way he chose for Abraham and Isaac. But it is the way he chose to do it with his own son, Jesus. And it is the way he does it with us. Amazing. Amazing. Just these parallels together. I mean, you can read on. Isaac, Isaac soon is going to get a bride, a beautiful bride. And you read on from the New Testament, from the Gospels, and Jesus gets a beautiful bride, the church. He has a bride too. That's us. That's who he won for himself. And then God reiterates his promises to Abraham. I will surely do what I have promised. I will surely do it. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. He's already said that. And the sand on the seashore. He hasn't said that before, but... Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, all your offspring. All nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
It's not because he's obeyed him. It's because God is faithful to his promises. But Abraham acted out in faith and in trust. He trusted him for the future. And the miracle that Abraham saw and the salvation that comes to us through Jesus all come about because both Abraham and Jesus put their love of God above everything else. They trusted in God's plan for their lives. They proved it was more important and God was faithful. And we are in the benefit of that. We are in the benefit of Abraham's obedience and of Jesus' obedience. Obedience to go to death on the cross. To take upon himself our sin. So let's be encouraged. We have life because of them. We have life because of Jesus. We have come into God's family, his church, because of Jesus. It's all because of what he has done. But we follow him. We trust in him. We believe in him. So we may be facing situations in our life which are difficult, which seem impossible. How is this going to come about? I don't get it, God. Well, we're not the first to be there. And God is the same God. God is a faithful God. God will provide for for us, even in impossible, unattainable situations. Even in those ways. Like Abraham, let's trust in him. Even in the storm, as, as Christina prayed out earlier. Actually, even in the midst of the storm, even as we feel as though we're walking on the water and we're about to sink, he is Lord. We sang that, didn't we? Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. That's who we trust in. We only trust in Jesus' name. There is no one else to trust in. And it's not a desperate trusting because he's faithful. He's proved it time and time again. He proved it through Abraham. He proved it through Jesus. He proved it through all his servants. And he proves it through us. So let's be encouraged. Let's pray.